All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami, welcome back to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. You've heard me in the past talk about our Device Talks Tuesdays program. It's a weekly series of meetings, discussions centered around the medtech industry. It's a great opportunity for our friends and sponsors to tell their stories and to talk about how they're making medtech better. This is your opportunity to hear what we're up to on Device Talks Tuesdays. This week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast will feature a conversation that we had on Tuesday that I hosted on Tuesday called Where Will Innovation Emerge in 2021? The panel was great. We had Jennifer McKaney. She is the co-executive director of UCLA Biodesign. We had Jackie Mahia. She is the director of G-Beta MedTech in Minneapolis. And finally, Scott Morley. He's the director in the Office of Economic Partnerships at the University of Pittsburgh. These people are on the front lines of innovation. They're really trying to uh, find new ideas, new folks, new ways to make medtech better. So it was a great opportunity for us to sort of learn how innovation has changed under COVID, how people are innovating differently, how opportunities are emerging, where people are finding money, what sort of approaches are uh, really gaining traction. So it was a far ranging conversation. This is a slightly edited version. If you want to watch the whole thing, please go to devicetalks.com. All of our Device Talks Tuesdays are available on demand. It's a great opportunity for you to not only listen, but also watch if you want to uh, want to see the entire presentation. But uh, this is going to be a great summation of what we talked about there. And uh, please do join us for uh, future Device Talks Tuesdays. On February 2nd, we'll be hosting uh, Sagentia. They'll be talking about UX design. It's going to be an important conversation. And uh, please do check that out. Follow it up with another discussion on February 9th with our friends from Finnegan. We'll be talking about uh, artificial intelligence. So this has been a lot of fun for me. It's a great way, again, to just like this podcast, for me to uh, connect with folks and to connect not only with the folks on the panel, but also the people in the audience because we're able to uh, answer questions and really make it more of an interactive experience. So please do check it out. Go to devicetalks.com to check out our Device Talks Tuesdays offering. You can watch all our past events. You can register for future events. It's a great way to remain connected. But now, of course, we need to check into this week in MedTech. I'd like to introduce my podcast partner, my co-host, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well. Excellent. It's been quite a week, quite a week. Chris, I'm, I'm back to reading the papers now. I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore. And I read in the paper this morning that the, the new big craze is turning podcasts into uh, TV shows. Wow. So I'm thinking, you know, we're getting some traction here. What do you think? Do you think we could... Uh, that sounds great. Get a little creative and turn this into uh, some kind of uh, television broadcast? You know, I, I like it. I think that's a, I think that's a good idea. You know, I, um, you know, I, I wouldn't mind if, you know, they could get Matt Damon to play me. I'll go with that. That sounds good. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a good call. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I guess, I guess we could go with the uh, Damon effect thing. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've been told in my younger days, I was a, a David Schwimmer doppelganger. Wow. And in my later years, Ray Romano. So those are my, uh, my two big, uh, big A-listers, but, uh, you know, I, I like that podcast becoming movies. That sounds you know, I, I could go for that. It says, right, it, that's a lot better than I heard. I, I read an article that there was a trend recently of young people getting into sea shanties. 
<laughs> I mean, do you think we could do a sea shanty for, for, you know, let's not never do that. Let's never I, do that. <laughs> I do. I do have a friend who sings sea shanties, so uh, it's not for me. I mean, even with a glass of rum, I don't think I'd do a sea shanty. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll get working on a, a screenplay and uh, my people will call your people and all Are there be a podcast movie? <laughs> the sea shanty, shanty podcast. podcast. <laughs> Coming to you from WTWH Media. <laughs> Let's move on to MedTech, my friend. That's where we make yes. our bread and our butter. So uh, you have gone, you've ratcheted back up. We're now up to the top five. It's been such a, a busy week. So let's. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. Let's hit upon the new markers, newsmakers of, uh, of this fine inaugural week. The new markers, newsmakers. Dun, 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 dun. All right. So number five, we got uh, the Pew Synthes. Uh, they land an FDA clearance for their uh, Velus robotic knee system. And uh, this is really J&J's, uh, you know, move to uh, really compete with Stryker in the orthosurgical robotics space. Stryker um, has just ton of success with its uh, with its Mako robots. J&J is looking to compete more with the uh, with the Velus system. You know, kind of the the, the big thing is that it's uh, you know, table mounted. J&J says it can, you know, integrate into any operating room, you know, trying to find something a little different than that, you know, Mako robot, which is like the the size of a, you know, mini fridge with an arm coming out of it. This thing, uh, you know, can potentially be more adaptable. So, you know, we'll see how J&J does with it. Is J&J the only company with uh, both a, a orthopedic and a soft tissue robotic system? I mean, they don't have Otava yet, but uh, would they be the only one out there? Um, you know, uh, Medtronic, uh, you know, th they've been working on, you know, their Hugo, of course. Yeah. And then, you know, they also have like the Mazer robots, which are working on spine. So, Good point. so I guess, I guess that makes sense. Medtronic and J&J &J are the two largest medical device companies. So they both have kind of like a, a foot in both of those robotic spaces right now. Yeah. That'll be uh, exciting yeah. to watch a King Kong Godzilla yeah. sort of thing going at each other. But uh, all right. Well, what is number four on wow. the new markers, newsmakers, Chris? You know, number four was that uh, Philips acquired Capsule Technology uh, and its uh, medical device data tech. And this is a $635 million deal. So, uh, you know, not not a small amount or at least not a small <laughs> amount for middle class people like us. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, Capsule, um, you know, they did, you know, they're uh, developing medical device integration and data technologies for hospitals, healthcare organizations, and you know their offering includes a, a medical device information platform for integration, vital signs monitoring, clinical surveillance services. So, I mean, Philips has been had the strategy of just being like super focused on digital health, absolutely on you know trying to integrate the health system. So, this just looks like another uh, you know another technology offering that they're acquiring to just boost themselves any more even more in this area. That's interesting. And they're based up uh, my way in North Andover. I think, I don't know if they're, yeah. if they're part of the move. I think they're all going to be moving down to Cambridge. They're kind of going to move into the uh, Kendall Square, or at least the Cambridge area. So we'll see if that uh, that's part of that. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big deal and an exciting deal. All right. It's a big deal. And then, you know, Boston Psy, uh, this is our number three Boston Psy, um, is going to acquire uh, Preventus uh, Solutions. Uh, Preventus, you know, based around here in Minneapolis, uh, they have uh, uh, roots uh, down you know, around Rochester, Minnesota, actually, uh, you know, where Mayo Clinic is uh, based, but Preventus uh, designs uh, mobile health solutions and, you know, remote monitoring services for uh, patients with cardiac arrhythm arrhythmias. The, you know, their the wearables include the, you know, the uh, you know, patient care platform and the body guardian fa family of 
you know, monitors. So, you know, Boston Psy, a, a big implantable cardiac device maker, and they're, you know, acquiring uh, this company that has these, uh, you know, these, uh, these wearable, uh, you know, monitors to, you know, for, you know, for people with uh, cardiac arrhythmias. So just kind of um, going along with this, this trend of, you know, device companies in recent years have been really moving away from just being manufacturers. And they're kind of, you know, saying, hey, you know, we're, we don't just like make cardiac devices. We're a, you know, heart disease management company. And yep. so, you know, there we go. We got Boston side buying these, uh, these, this, uh, this wearables company that's you know, had a lot of buzz over the years. And we talked about that last week on the podcast, just how digital med tech is almost, it's kind of redundant that med tech needs to have digital components to it to, moving forward. So not all of it, maybe, but a good part. Good, good deal. Good number three. Yeah. What's number two? Oh, number two, we're, we're heading back into the robotic surgery space. We have a Transenterics received a, a CE mark for uh, their uh, intelligent surgical unit, you know, for their uh, Senhan system. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is artificial intelligence, uh, you know, to, you know, kind of you know, do some, um, you know, automatic, uh, you know, machine, you know, vision with their, with their system. This is one of the big strategies that, you know, Transenterics has had to, uh, you know, better uh, compete with Senhans was to package some AI, uh, you know, into the, into the system. So uh, they're, they're kind of moving, moving forward. They got the CE mark for it and, uh, you know, they uh, got FDA clearance for it and, um, in March 2020. So just kind of moving forward. And this just comes um, after them uh, announcing just just a week or so ago that they'd uh, raised more than $31 million in stock offerings. So they're, uh, I, I said it on the title LinkedIn, they're kind of like the uh, little little robotic surgery company that could. <laughs> That's right. And their, their stock price took a took a boost too. I think they were under a dollar at the end of last year. Now it was over 3 or $4 now. So yeah, investors must be liking what they're hearing. All right. Well, what's the, uh, the big number one on the New Markers Newsmakers? Hey, well, the big number one is, uh, you know, we got a new president. He's doing stuff. So, um, you know, in fact, yesterday I, it was probably like COVID day at the uh, at the new Biden administration White House, including releasing a 200 page, uh, you know, document about how they're, uh, you know, in, you know, going to be uh, doing, uh, you know, the, these are like, quote unquote, full scale wartime plans against uh, against COVID. And there's a lot of news here for the medical device industry and what and what is being uh, being planned. Um, you know, for example, uh, and by the way, we have a really good good roundup of all the takeaways from this plan uh, on medical device design outsourcing. I run by our great managing editor, Nancy Crotty. But, uh, you know, uh, Nancy was pointing out that, uh you know, like, you know, things in this plan include doing, uh, you know, full use of the, uh, you know, you know, Defense uh, Production Act, this uh, Korean War era, uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, other appropriate authorities that kind of like breakthrough log jams in, in the supply. So, you know, there was a lot of debate, debate in the past, like how much role the government, um, you know, should should play and, you know, telling manufacturers to do things. And, you know, under under this new administration, they're, they're, they're just doing it. They're, they're obviously moving forward and telling manufacturers to do stuff. Um, you know, there's, um, you know, pushing toward a strategy to have more of a U.S. manufacturing base. So in, in the future, when we have Hopefully in a while, hopefully it will be a while, a while, but we have a crisis like this in the future. We uh, won't be uh, you know, sitting around realizing like most of our stuff's being made overseas mm-hmm. that we need to need to combat, you know, whatever pandemic or whatnot that we're, we're dealing with. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, that, uh, you know, Nancy spotted that there was you know, stuff in the plan about, quote unquote, attractive loans to manufacturers to dramatically increase capacity. So, uh, you know, Nancy's going to look into that more. Um, that could be... Uh, 
I mean, that sounds interesting. That's something I, I'm sure some of our listeners would uh, like to find out more about. Certainly, yeah. Sounds like an opportunity to, to expand or or maybe some more onshoring, like you said, bringing more of our manufacturing back to these shores. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was a big thing for Trump. And, um, you know, you know, it seems like happen. Biden, too, like Biden's saying, hey, yeah, we need to get get more manufacturing back in the in the u.s so that sounds like uh good news for people working in manufacturing in the u.s i'd say oh, good news for all of us yeah. excellent well this one's not on the list but i know you were just working on a uh a roundup of single-use uh endoscope tech and uh that was uh the the, the podcast we did last year with ambu and boston scientific remains one of our more popular so i'm sure we'll be talking about that list next week yeah and they are on in that roundup Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're talking here on Friday and uh, this should be uh, posting up on uh, our on our site, Medical Tubing and Extrusion While We Speak. We're going to have uh, you know little uh, little stubs of that that roundup on mass device and medical design outsourcing, but a, a really good roundup from uh, our senior editor, Daniel Kirsch. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I, I would I'd say it would be fair to assume that Boston Sci and Ambu are, are in that roundup. All right, now it's time for our keynote conversation, which is actually with three people. I'll start this off with uh, allowing our panelists to introduce themselves. So first, we'll hear from Jennifer McKinney. She, again, is the co-executive director of UCLA Biodesign. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Pleasure being here today. Big fan of device talks. And if I can be there, uh, I'm from Boston originally. So if I can be there in October, I will be. uh, And certainly look forward to to what that event will, will be. Uh, Jennifer McKinney, as Tom said, Executive Director of UCLA Biodesign, and also Assistant Professor at the UCLA Anderson School of Management and UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. I wear many hats at UCLA, uh, Associate Director of our Clinical Translational Science Institute, and am really deeply involved with entrepreneurial activities at the convergence of healthcare and technology. Next up is Jackie Mejia. She is the Director of G-Beta MedTech in Minneapolis. So hi, everyone. I'm Jackie Mejia. I'm the director of a program called G-Beta MedTech. It's part of Generator. So I work for a company called Generator. Uh, Generator is a platform for the creative economy that connects innovators, startups, founders, um, musicians, artists with corporations, universities, investors. We're really all about building community. And this platform that we've built includes programming like pre-accelerators and accelerator programs. um, but it also includes our business development team. So we have corporate programming, conferences, and fellowships that we also offer throughout the year. Um, and like I mentioned, I'm the director of an accelerator program called Ubeta MedTech. And this is a free seven-week accelerator program for early-stage startups, specifically in the healthcare sector. And our goal is to help companies get ready to fundraise by offering them mentorship and coaching, um, educational webinars, and also introducing them to experts in the healthcare sector, serial entrepreneurs, and investors as well. And finally, we hear from Scott Morley. Again, he is the director of the Office of Economic Partnerships at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, my name is Scott Morley, and I lead the industry partnerships team at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, we sit inside the Office of Industry and Economic Partnerships, and our mission is to dr- drive research collaborations between uh, primarily pharmaceutical uh, and med tech and other life sciences companies with the university with the aim of uh, translating our good science for societal impact and helping, uh, helping companies access the resources of the university to meet their external innovation needs. Came to the university about two years ago out of the medical device industry 
for uh, for 15 years. The first part of my career, I worked at a startup company that was a spin out of the university uh, in the artificial lung critical care space. It was called A-Lung Technologies. Did engineering and clinical affairs, marketing, business development over my time there. Came to the university about two years ago, first to run our Coulter program, which is a med tech accelerator. Uh, and then over the, the last year, moved into this new role as we uh, we really build out our team and seek to grow our industry partnering capability at Pitt. All right, now that we know who the players are, let's get into the conversation. I opened up the uh, discussion for our Device Talks Tuesdays with these three panelists to talk about how COVID has impacted an innovation in their centers, what what they're doing differently, how they're working differently with innovators. So uh, let's follow the conversation from there. First, we'll hear from Jackie Mejia. You know, for a program like ours, for example, where it used to be an in-person program, so we would require the companies to move here to the Twin Cities for seven weeks. What we realized is that as soon as the program went virtual because of COVID, uh, we saw a lot more demand for a program like ours. So, you know, the applications basically quadrupled for the last program because of this. And applicants were coming from all over the country. It wasn't just the East Coast or the West Coast. We had a whole bunch of applicants from the Midwest. But we also started to see a lot of applications from outside of the United States. So there is innovation in Europe and in Asia and um, entrepreneurs that have technologies and that want to take them to the United States market. So we definitely saw through our applications that founders want to get plugged in to the uh, Midwest healthcare sector. You know, I think that they recognize that this is certainly a healthcare hub. And uh, because companies like Boston Scientific and 3M, for example, have responded to to the pandemic in such strong ways, United Healthcare as well. I think that it's certainly shed a light on 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 the Midwest and and the fact that you know it, innovation just come out of here as well. But but we can also bring innovation from other locations here because it's a stable enough a community and environment to help um, founders move forward with their ideas. That's great. And, and Jennifer, uh, in the UCLA obviously draws from uh, across the country and the world. Uh, but I'm wondering how how did uh, COVID impact the the types of people who are approaching your program and and perhaps you could also speak to how did you work differently uh, once those how did they work differently once they were involved in your biodesign program? Yeah, Tom, it's a great question. And Jackie, I I certainly can appreciate the kind of new new net from which we we are drawing potential innovators as well as trainees for our UCLA biodesign program. We saw a similar trend in applications, huge uptick this fall. For those interested in really kind of getting on level on innovation training and thinking about entrepreneurial opportunities in healthcare, you know, specifically to UCLA, I think, you know, being based in Los Angeles, which is currently, you know, in the the heart of the pandemic right now, or in the kind of eye of the storm, as we as we wager through COVID, we actually our entire program at UCLA Biodesign this year is dedicated to innovation in areas impacted by COVID nineteen, meaning that. Uh, pulmonary critical care, my home division, and infectious disease are our two primary focus areas, meaning that our eight innovation fellows in the biodesign program are focused on those two areas at UCLA Health, which in and of itself is is the number one hospital in California, um, number four hospital in the nation as ranked by U.S. News and World Report. So we're really fortunate to be able to have the um, kind of top-down leadership to say that your innovation focus for the year um, is in this specific clinical area. So in that way, we have uh, 
you know, a catheter engineer from Medtronic, a uh, rocket scientist from SpaceX. We have uh, an intensive care doc, a critical care nurse, and many other um, similar individuals with, with these amazing backgrounds coming together. And they're really on the front lines alongside our healthcare workers. So in that way, our, our program hasn't changed, but a lot of that remote innovation work, Tom, has changed in that we're using a lot of things like Nero boards and what, two, two different technologies or three different technologies at once while we're on Zoom to try to recreate some of those in-person innovation aha moments, if you will, that are a little bit perhaps harder to come by, but we're getting time back because we're not traveling on the 405 for those of you that are from Southern mm -hmm. California in the audience today. Um, we're certainly gaining that valuable traffic and commuter time back to spend more time um, thinking about our innovations. Scott, how are you seeing things at the University of Pittsburgh? Uh, and I wonder whether just broadly has the pall that COVID cast over the world and over the country, has that made people feel, in your perspective, more innovative or, or maybe less inclined to, to want to try something because there's just some degree of uncertainty out there when it comes to, I don't know, for everything from just from getting day to day to getting funding, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think like everybody is reflected here, things changed a bit and it wasn't necessarily good or bad or uh, you, you can't sum it all up one way or the other. Um, there was good and bad throughout it all. And, you know, some of the good things that we saw is that um, we, we think our faculty and our innovators on campus actually took some time as campus was shutting down um more or less back in March to take the time to write up those invention disclosures, spend the time with patent counsel, button up IP things they wanted to get done, maybe make some applications to some translational grant programs, think about business models, participate in our early stage, um, you know, I-Corp type programs. And with, with all that, you know, we had this kind of influx of new innovation and a whole bunch of work that surrounded COVID work directly with the university, put about a million dollars out there for translational research projects and our health system investing even more. You know, all that said, where did we have some hangups and some changes? You know, I, I think we all got through the we're going to work remotely thing fairly quickly. And, you know, we were able, we're by now we've got labs back up and running and, you know, um, all the critical research up and running. But there's certain things that just haven't you know, fully come back online. Clinical trials that are kind of early stage feasibility studies that aren't deemed kind of critical right now are, are you know, still either slow or um, just kind of coming back online. So those have been delayed. Uh, we have projects that were kind of in implementation just when the pandemic hit from like a, an IT standpoint in the healthcare system. We were going to pilot some new uh, programs in the surgical setting, for instance, just because of, again, the demands on the health system during that time. That all kind of came to a halt and had to be paused and, and then slowly ramped back up. But uh, you know, with, again, with those, there's always a silver lining with those things. Take some time to do some additional refinement on those prototype products or whatever it might be and then hit the ground running when we, when we can't get to it. Next, I wanted to talk about the impact that COVID had not on innovation itself, but on the healthcare system upon which innovation is trying to improve. Has the financial impact of the disease changed the algorithm, changed the equation, changed the way that entrepreneurs and innovators are looking at, uh, at problems to solve? So we'll open up this uh, this question. Scott Morley from the University of Pittsburgh will kick us off. At the end of the day, though, that whether whether you adopt the triple or the quadruple aim of healthcare or, or whatever the term is, I mean, we're after the same things. It's got to be solid value propositions, uh, improved uh, through improved quality of care, uh, reduced costs, uh, improvements for the workforce. And you know, when we look at it uh, at Pitt. 
in collaboration with our health system, UPMC, we've got the unique perspective of being able to look at it as an integrated payer provider, those technologies, and, and make those assessments, for, at least for our internal purposes. Um, you know, externally, as we work with partners, you know, for the most part, our partnering activity around research, or, you know, research and innovation uh, has remained strong. And you know, my perspective is that the industry and more of our work on partnering is on the pharma side than on med tech, but that's remained quite strong during this time. Certainly, there have been organizations, though, and those that have suffered economic impact more due to um, reduction in elective procedures, for instance. They've seen their R&D budgets go into a state of flux and unsure if they can partner. Things they were thinking about licensing and doing deals on have to slow down. So, you know, again, not, uh, not universal across the board on that front. Jennifer, you're you're working closely to a uh, hospital system as well. Your fellows, I'm sure, go into the hospital and assess where we are and what and what they see. So, h- how have things changed uh, from your perspective in that regard? Yeah, Tom. You know, I think one of the biggest things is is that we always think about in the early stage spaces. You know, we're not designing for the healthcare system of today. We're designing for the healthcare system of tomorrow, and and that's a result of of, um, of COVID. The healthcare system of tomorrow is a lot closer to where you know today than we thought it was going to be in terms of telemedicine, in terms of decentralization of care. And so what I, I really encourage our fellows and, and also our faculty in our accelerator program is to think about what is that healthcare system of the future? And you know, from the flip side of the table on the investor side, I see a lot more questions around who's gonna buy it, who's gonna pay for it, whether or not mm-hmm. that's a function of the hospital health system bottom line being reduced you know, by hundreds of billions of dollars in 2020, um, I think there's going to be greater scrutiny around purchasing decisions potentially just in, you know, in the near term. What's that going to look like in a long-term scenario where we have, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, and national emergency is extended until I believe it's March. Um, you know, with the policies around telehealth, I'm hoping a lot of that's here to stay and really being able to think about innovating more, you know, solutions that are going to function in that telehealth decentralized healthcare system that is a lot closer than we thought it was going to be in the future. Jackie, are the ideas you're seeing uh, G-Beta, are they, are they different than perhaps they were a year ago because their people are adapting yeah. their innovation for, for a, new, a new world? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, before, you know, consumers had a very similar expectation. You know, we need to figure out who our doctor is. We need to make an appointment, fill out a whole bunch of paperwork every time we go into a different office, et cetera. And now I think expectations have changed because we responded so quickly to these circumstances, right? So we moved toward this digital era and, you know, we're probably not going to move backwards, right? That's probably not going to happen. And so we've definitely seen an uptick in innovation when it comes to digital health. And and, and not just that, but, you know, when it comes to medical devices, um, specifically too, you know, there's there's a big push towards remote, remote patient monitoring and also integrating um, these devices with, with cloud-based technologies, right? So that mm-hmm. they can collect data um, on a daily basis on demand and, and they can share that information with healthcare systems and then ultimately with the patient because I think now it's, it's all um, converging towards the patient. What does the patient want? How can we make this a patient-centric um, system? Um, and I think, you know, when it comes comes to to the economics you definitely have to showcase what what Scott was saying you know you still need to need to showcase that you know this is going to improve the quality of care that there's a strong value proposition and this is going to reduce costs um, but I, I do think that you know last year uh, 
um, many things were put on hold. And, and I think Scott also uh, referred to this earlier, right? You know, certain procedures were just paused. And, and that means that a lot of the innovation that was happening was sort of put on hold for a while. I think that was a huge challenge last year uh, for, for mm -hmm. many innovators um, because they weren't seeing investment coming into 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 their companies. Uh, they were seeing that investment sort of shift more towards the digital health uh, startups, for example. Um, angel investment, for example. Uh, an individual angels became more cautious about investing, and, and so they weren't writing as many checks. And then for VCs, even though they probably had already raised the money for the fund, for last year, and they were still actively seeking um, startups to invest in, I think that they were being more cautious. So the due diligence uh, was becoming more robust. It was becoming longer. Um, and so there, there was a change in, in how investment happened in the space for sure and an opportunity mm -hmm. to move forward with, with innovation. At least that's what um, I saw with some of the companies that I worked with. So we talked about the uh, innovators. We talked about the impact of COVID on the healthcare system. Now, what about the, the corporates? Corporates have grown to be uh, great partners for early stage ventures and uh, early stage groups like G-Beta. I asked our uh, panelists whether or not cor corporates are looking at uh, medtech any differently, whether they're looking at innovation any differently. So Scott Morley, once again, we'll, uh, we'll kick it off. Yeah, I mean, just to address the um, corporate side first, uh, absolutely there is, and you know, we we continue to be engaged in growing our uh, you know uh, the list of companies we work with at Pitt. Um, you know, what's interesting about the med tech space uh, in in terms of partnering with the universities is that you know um, from a from a kind of a late stage asset development. Most universities aren't good at that in the med tech space. Largely, we're not making something that's ready to, say, go kind of out of our labs and to human clinical trials in a short time frame. Uh, and that's just kind of the nature of the type of the development that goes on at, at most universities, at least. There's, there's certainly exceptions to that. So we work with a lot of early stage assets that we're you know, trying to put through a process of technical de-risking and business de-risking, such that they're at the point they're investable and ready to be spun out. But on the research side, the, the large corporates aren't, in our case, coming so much to us for um, what's the next thing we can license from you? Certainly have those discussions, but more, what are some of the what are some of the things you have access to in the university environment that we don't have access to that can fuel our innovation from a research standpoint? And this is where we get into things like, you know, um, really innovative uh, in vitro and in vivo models, uh, access mm. to aggregated uh, de-identified data sets that can be interrogated for you know research questions um, under the appropriate approvals and whatnot, expertise in modeling, visualization, clinical expertise is, is a big one. Um, you know, so those are the kind of things that we're in very frequent conversations with early stage feasibility studies. Now, where it got a little tricky, as I said before, is in the in the things that we had to be kind of live doing work, whether that be a early you know, stage kind of 10-person feasibility, 10-patient feasibility study uh, or doing lab work where, you know, we had to have people in person in labs doing work um, that got slowed down, you know, in the first six months of the pandemic and has largely been able to, to ramp back up. So we're playing a little bit of catch up now. You know, on the early stage front, our academic innovators remain as interested in ever as doing this. Um, I think most of them don't, most of them are not planning any ways to make a leap out of academia and take the company out on their own. So there's kind of the security blanket of their day job in the university anyways. And, and that's fine. That's a, for, for most of them exactly how it should be. Um, you know, 
what what we have to do though is continue to fill our uh, network full of entrepreneurs that have uh, an interest in taking these technologies out and building companies around them and also have access to capital and help facilitate that access to capital so we can get these things these companies spun out and, and off the ground um, and certainly that you know that degree of risk tolerance I think you know, everybody kind of took a step back and had to figure that out for, for the first part of this time. But we're, again, seeing that ramp back up. You know, we've got a steady stream of folks coming through our, uh, you know, various ways we engage, looking for new opportunities, looking for, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities to start businesses around on the med tech and the pharma side. And Jennifer, I want to get that same question to you in a moment. But Jackie, I just wanted to follow up with you on, on the corporate side of things. GBeta works with corporates. You could If you could tell us who you're working with. And I'm just yeah. wondering, has... Have you seen that relationship change at all? Is there is it more? Is it, are there greater interest, less interest, and uh, what's the sense you're getting? Yeah, I I don't know if the relationship has changed much. Um, for context, uh, the G Beta MedTech program is a sponsor led program, so it's free for founders. It's it's we don't invest in the founder. So we're not taking up any equity. It's completely free. And this program is sponsored by Boston Scientific. Um, that's been our major sponsor since 2018. We also receive additional support from Medical Alley Association, the Mayo Clinic, the University of Minnesota. And recently, with we partnered with University Enterprise Labs, which is an incubator here in the Twin Cities. And um, we received support from BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, uh, which is a government agency. Part, part of HHS. And, um, you know, I think what we've seen, we've seen continued support from these organizations. I think, you know, going back to Jennifer's initial point at the beginning of the talk, you know, focus areas have changed and we've seen that within corporations as well. Them wanting to fund, um, you know, technologies that were related to their, our response to COVID. Uh, that's something we've seen. But I think that, you know, the biggest thing that I've seen is sort of the, the relationships that have come about between different corporations, right? You start to see collaboration between corporations that perhaps normally wouldn't collaborate. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that this sense of community definitely um, was strengthened during this time. Um, and so, you know, supporting programs like ours is is definitely a priority for a lot of these corporations and, and also government entities, but also finding ways to, to collaborate and communicate with other organizations, perhaps, you know, their competitors um, to get products out there to move innovation much quicker so that we can respond to the pandemic. Um, so, so, you know, we, we rely on, on, relationships with corporations to a really great extent to make the program happen. But also, you know, we, our business development team works really closely with corporations as well. Let's say, for example, we work with Boston Scientific and our goal is how can we help these corporations, these organizations uh, create or uh, enhance their innovation or their venture arm. So we're helping them connect with innovators in the space. And and we've def definitely seen a change in the focus area, like I mentioned before. Um, but facilitating those connections, not just beneficial for the corporations, but also beneficial for those innovators, um, those, those early stage founders um, that need to understand, you know, how do I start building relationships? And, and with these organizations, can I do pilot studies with these organizations? 
so I don't think that the relationship has changed much between our organization and corporations. Um, I mm -hmm. certainly think, you know, it, it's strengthened to some extent. But what I have seen is that among the different corporations and organizations that we work with, there has been more connection between them, finding ways to work together uh, to move forward and, and accelerate um, the commercialization of, of, of many products that are coming to market. You, and do you think that commercialization, again, is just sort of a we're all pulling together in a crisis sort of thing? It'll dissipate once we're back to normal or is, is there something longer lasting there? Yeah, I don't think it will dissipate. Um, I think that one of the things that we're starting to realize is is that power of collaboration and working together. I hope it doesn't dissipate. It just shows how much faster we can get things, you know, from an idea stage really to commercialization. And we've seen that to some extent also with like healthcare systems and digital health too, right? You know, um, now for example, it's it's you know about patient care and how patients want more data of, of their own health in their hands. And so in order to do this, there has to be some sort of collaboration, bringing different platforms together. And so I think that that sort of integration between different systems and collaborative projects will, will continue after, after this. At, at least I hope so. Jennifer, there's a lot there to, to talk about. Uh, let's uh, start with... Uh, Corporations, do you work with, uh, how do you work with the corporate community? Do you at all? What's the relationship like? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. I, I think that, you know, Jackie and Scott really, um, really spoke um, deeply to, to how corporate corporations interact with, with the academic setting. And certainly at UCLA Biodesign, we, we work closely with, with many of our industry partners in, um, in Northridge and Orange County and, and beyond. I think in terms of, you know, what we haven't touched on in the discussion is, the importance of emerging importance of pharma in the med tech space. And I think that the big linker there is digital, right? Because as digital becomes its own industry and whether it's going to it's going to sit under pharma or Advomed, if you will, or thinking of kind of the industry trade associations, I'd, I have seen Advomed kind of make a big push for, you know, with the, the med tech digital conference and other spaces. And we've seen that on the academic setting side, too, where, you know, as digital kind of falls under this med tech umbrella and in my own rationale, I, I place digital med tech because CDRH is regulating software and software is a medical device, um, as we know. So we've seen increasing engagement. You know, Genentech is one of our program sponsors at UCLA Biodesign. And I think that we're going to see continued engagement from pharma on the med tech side because digital is building a stronger bridge between our two industries. Scott, in Pittsburgh, I mean, you guys have a great robotics community, so much great tech in, in the area. Have you seen any techno, any industries that maybe haven't traditionally touched med tech or healthcare before kind of gravitating toward the space? It's mm, a good question. Uh, you know, I think we've seen exactly what you mentioned, uh, Jennifer, you know, regarding uh, the pharma partners we have coming to us with questions more along the lines of, of healthcare data. I mean, I'm not going to call it digital health. I don't and I'm, you know, how do you call what do you call digital health? But, um, you know, can we can we somehow have discussions about uh, using healthcare data to, you know, really realize the potential of personalized medicine at scale? And what does that look like for the future? And, you know, certainly we're exploring ways, um, knowing that the only way to to scale that in the future is through code development with industry partners, you know, how can we, we do that in a responsible way from an academic standpoint, along with our partners at the health system? Um, you know, other industries that are, are 
kind of um, coming at us, you know, new. It's it's we have a very strong intersection between medicine and engineering, and we will find uh, often companies that we never thought had an interest in the medical space coming to us and saying, "That's really interesting. We're interested in getting into advanced materials for uh, you know for for medical devices or other kind of uh, primarily medical devices, but also kind of in the regenerative medicine biomaterial space and." You know, we have some projects underway with a variety of folks that probably don't advertise that they're in that business, but um, have certain, they believe they have certain capabilities and with our collaboration can grow that. So on the robotics front, um, yeah, obviously here in Pittsburgh uh, with our friends down the street at Carnegie Mellon, huge presence in the, the robotics industry, um, also autonomous vehicles. You know, we've got... Uh, We've got some robotics work that goes on at the University uh, of Pittsburgh, and we do have a lot of collaborative work that goes on between the universities. It's kind of a unique situation where we can put together, in many cases, the, if you will, the computational power of CMU with a uh, an academic medical center and all of, you know six schools of the health sciences to really kind of cover a variety of different projects. So a lot of a lot of things that uh, that get done, you know, in collaboration with with those folks, bring a lot of power to it. I'm involved in a project that went through our um, our Coulter program here, and it's one of our, you know, our MedTech Accelerator program, uh, just as an example, and it's, um, you know, some advanced clinical decision support tools that are being developed for the uh, perioperative, perioperative environment, so pre and post, pre-surgical, surgical, and post-surgical, and really done in, in a nice collaboration with a CMU data scientist and a PIT physician, and um, hmm. Terrific to see those kind of things progress towards commercialization. But Jackie, I did want to just hear from you also on this question. Are, are some of the applications you're getting who are saying, you know, I, I'm moving from whatever previous industry I had in before. I really want to, I really want to make a difference here in med tech because we're in healthcare. Yeah. Are you seeing some new, I, new blood? Yeah, I guess you know, in general, it's hard for me to answer that question. But you know, I think, for example, about cybersecurity, right? And how, for instance, now if we want our health care, you know, systems to essentially go online, for us to be able to have um, services online, so see our doctors online, and also to access our data online, um, all of this comes with challenges as well. How do we keep that secure, for example? And so we, we're, we're seeing also that, you know, for cybersecurity, security, for instance, there's this huge opportunity to move into the healthcare space now to ensure that our, all of our data is safe. Um, so I do think that to some extent, there are people that are that are shifting their focus. Um, I don't I don't know if they're if. You know, I, I've seen a few people that are have nothing to do with healthcare. You know, start to move into this space, um, but I think it's more you know individuals that perhaps are physicians, um, you know, therapists, for example, in in the mental health space. We've seen a huge uptick in 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 startups in in that space, and I think it, many times it's individuals that maybe never thought of themselves as entrepreneurs. As you know, I'm gonna go and start this app so that I can offer online services for my patients. Um, but they, they've seen the need for it and, and they see that this is a time where, where they, they feel comfortable taking that leap because, you know, it's a good time to do it. So I think even people that work within the healthcare space see an opportunity to innovate. So so we, we've definitely seen, you know, I, I think individuals that are not necessarily, you know, your serial entrepreneur come into the space and, and want to, you know, 
provide some of their expertise and and bring something new to the market that they think is is essential uh, during these times. And I do want to get to the uh, question that we have from the audience. Um, but uh, any, any, I kind of started the round robin with you. I didn't know if you had any more any more to add in terms of the individuals who wanted to move into healthcare. Anyone in your institution sort of migrating this way when they hadn't really thought about it before? Well, I, I think what's always wonderful to see is our um, our faculty and our staff and our students um, that are, are interested in taking some sort of entrepreneurial plunge and, and see that growing every year. I mean, at Pitt last last fiscal year, I think we did nearly 20 startups out of the university. And, um, you know, it's a testament to our, our faculty, um, you know, realizing that for their research to have societal benefit and impact, they've got to get it spun out. They've got to get it out to a company, either via startup of a new co or through a license. And with that, and with all the work that, that we're doing and, and Jennifer and Jack are doing and, and many other programs out there to build awareness amongst faculty that this is a really meaningful way to create impact from your research, we're starting to see those results. Uh, and we're really excited by that, energized by it. You know, I think what I'd just add to, to all the folks out there of, you know, coming uh, to this presentation today from industry is that we need your help. Absolutely. And we need your help in many ways. But, um, you know, if you've got an interest in this kind of early stage academic translation, please kind of make yourself known to your, your, your alma mater, your, your local university, whoever it is. Everybody's always looking for mentors and advisors and folks with industry expertise, because I can't stress enough how important that is. You know, as, as I ran the Coulter program at Pitt, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, our MedTech Accelerator, we spend, frankly, much more time on business de-risking, you know, clinical, what's the clinical strategy, what's the regulatory strategy, buttoning up IP issues uh, than we did on, on, you know, how to plan out the last round of uh, lab experiments that need done, the killer experiment or whatever. Um, usually that's pretty well in order, but we got to put a business model around something to get it to the point that uh, somebody can picture it as a new co and feel that it's sufficiently de-risked to, uh, to invest in it. So, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to get involved, and I just encourage the audience to, uh, to do that it's, if it's of interest because we, we can always use the help. And one of the benefits of our device Talks Tuesday's format is the ability to field questions from the audience. I wish we could do that on this podcast, but we can't. But we can on Device Talks Tuesdays. And uh, the question we asked the panelists came from a startup executive who asked, yes, it's great to talk about incubators and, and all the assistance goes with them. But what about funding? Are these folks seeing venture capitalists or investors step up to commit to really early stage ventures? Let's listen to what they have to say. I think that there are many barriers to, to early stage um, activity kind of gaining momentum. Funding is just one of them. I think that if we look at the data from last year, certainly a large proportion of that data was going to later stage companies, but we still saw significant investment in early stage companies. Specifically, you know, within our program, we're both a training program and innovation program. So we're looking, really looking at, um, for those of you that, that are familiar with technology, technology readiness levels, which are often used in defense and other industries. We're really looking at technology readiness level like one to four. So we're really pre-commercialization in terms of where UCLA Biodesign sits within our campus uh, ecosystem, if you will. And we have follow-on mechanisms that address, similar to, to Scott, kind of address that critical translational piece between academics and industry. I can say that, you know, within the LA ecosystem, being not one of those traditional med tech hubs like Boston or, um, or San Francisco or, or Minneapolis, um, we have seen critical infrastructure emerge, such as some of that wet lab space that, 
that's available for companies making the leap from academics to industry. So sometimes traditionally in Los Angeles, it was harder to find space to keep your company in Los Angeles because we didn't have the appropriate commercial infrastructure, real estate infrastructure to support your venture directly in our region. Um, so I've seen an increase in those, and particularly in the past two to three years. Um, Alexandra Real Estate uh, Ventures is located in Pasadena. They've started uh, several, uh, capitalized several projects in that space. And as well as the other kind of big barrier to us is, is those investor, super early stage investors, um, right? So micro funds, angel, friends and family. We don't see the big VCs coming to us at academic, at academic institutions. We really see bridge funders like angels and others that are going to be doing that initial high risk investment versus some of your blue chip VCs, particularly um, where we sit on the academic side. So I hope, I hope Joel, that that helps answer some of your question. I'll, I'll pass it off back to Tom and Jackie and Scott. Hold on a second. I just want to follow up. So have you had uh, any, any efforts that have received outside funding from anyone, from angels or anybody uh, in 2020 and if so, what type of investor was committing that capital? Where uh, are there were there angels out there doing support? Did what other type of people might be committing capital to some of your projects? If yeah, this Jennifer, I can yeah. I don't want to specifically um, speak about others' deals, but I can say that we have had projects um, come out of UCLA that have received venture funding in the healthcare in the healthcare space from Jackie. Angels. How about? From Angels. Okay, great. Jackie, yeah. and uh, who's providing funding to your, your projects? Yeah, this, this is the question <laughs> that yeah, always comes up in every conversation that I have with founders. Um, so I have office hours available. If, if, you, if anyone is, is listening is, is interested in talking to me, you can always go to our website and, and sign up for office hours. I always hear the same thing that, you know, the founders are saying, investors are telling me that I need to develop my technology further, but how do I do that if I don't have any money? And so, um, you know, I, I feel like Jennifer is right. This is where family and friends comes into play and angel investors and angel investment groups. Um, you know, I think in the healthcare sector, it's it's a tough uh, round for sure to tackle because it, you really want to approach people that understand the space to some extent. And may, when you're raising from family and friends or angel investors, it's that you're not necessarily getting at that expertise. And so if you can, if you can raise from family and friends, it, it's a great way to start. Most of the startups that I work with, that's how they start off. And with, you know, family, friends, angel round of, let's say, roughly 500K. Um, so, so so they don't they don't open up a huge round and and it's hard it's it's challenging they want you know vcs to start off right from the bat from the start and and you don't see that um no. and so that's that is one option but you know i would say a lot another option which is the option that we see quite often as well is a lot of the founders are seeking partnerships with researchers at universities, like the researchers that Jennifer and Scott work with, right? They're seeking those those partnerships so that they can start those initial studies, you know, in an academic institution and so that they can apply for um, non-diluted funding, like grants, like SBIR funding, for instance. And, and it is a long road to take. It, it's not as quick as if you are fundraising from angels or, or family and friends. It requires a lot of patience, but, you know, we, we've seen some success. So, for example, in, in the fall of 2020, three of our, our portfolio companies received SBIR funding 
I think one received a 150K from for a phase one. Quench Medical, another company, received 400K for a phase one and then two million for a phase two grant. Habit Aware, another company, received a million dollars from an SBAR phase two NSF grant. So it's definitely a route you want to take. And then when it comes to, to raising you know private investment, um, just in December, so this is not all of 2020, but just in December, we had two of our companies close rounds. I, I can't disclose who they are yet because they haven't shared the good news yet, but uh, we had, you know, one company that closed a $2 million seed round in December. And wow. that was mainly from, you know, they, they had mainly VCs in there and some angels. And then we have another company, for instance, that, that in December also, they closed a 500K seed round. Uh, I think it was one VC and then mainly angels. So I, I think it does depend a lot on the network that you're building, the relationships that you're building um, and how you're approaching. It's challenging and not everyone is going to get funding, unfortunately, um, it's definitely tough. And so that's where, you know, that's where programs like ours try to help, right? If if, if you apply to an, to an incubator or, or like a program like Scott's and, and Jennifer's or a program like Debate MedTech, what we're trying to do to some extent as well is how can we expand your network in a meaningful way? How can we put you in touch with individuals that have, uh, you know, networks of investors, angels, um, or put you in touch directly with angel investors and VCs at an early stage so that you can get an idea of what you need uh, prior to, you know, standing in front of these individuals and, and asking for money. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would say stay positive as positive as you can uh, stay. It's definitely a tough road, but there are different options. You you don't always have to just seek uh, private investment in order to move forward with your innovation. All right, Scott, you've had uh, plenty of time to write down names and emails and read them off to attendees. So, uh, no, seriously, how do you, uh, I'm sure you get this question in, in, in Pittsburgh as well. Yeah. What, what's the funding environment like there? Who's stepping up to helping these companies? Sure. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a great question, of course. And, you know, I would, I would, everything that, uh, Jennifer and Jackie mentioned is, you know, holds true here. Um, as was noted by, by Joel, the venture community, uh, the data seems to show they're much more interested on the med tech side and the late stage, later stage deals. So where do we fill the gaps? You know, in Pittsburgh, we're doing two things. At the university side, um, we are we're doubling down on our uh, investment in gap funds and mentorship and um, really making sure we've got infrastructure in place to put projects that have high potential on a commercialization trajectory and, you know, uh, surrounding them with the resources and the expertise to um, help them build value and accomplish key de-risking milestones. So that's a combination of funding. It's our advisory networks. It's structured programming, et cetera. We run that through our it's called our Innovation Institute, which is our tech transfer office. And our organization is uh, in the Office of Economic Partnerships as part of that. The other thing we're doing as a community uh, in the Pittsburgh area, and this is also supported by the university, is standing up... Um, you know, an external accelerator. Uh, and that, that program is called LifeX, and the university recently started that to provide not just a physical place, but, but similar to our on-campus incubator, um, but externally, you know, the resources, the mentoring, the support for our uh, emerging companies that are um, on their path to commercialization. We think that's really, really important. You know, the funding is, uh, you know, in the Pittsburgh area, we're very fortunate to have... Um, fair bit of kind of family office and high net worth individual angel investor funding. Uh, we're compared to other regions um, on the VC front, you know, much lower. 
So we, for the early stage deals, rely largely on uh, you know those family offices and angel investors, as well as some of our regional economic development organizations that have um, some public money made available to them to make investments. And um, that ecosystem uh, certainly uh, is growing year by year and gets more and more sophisticated. And I think we're beginning to see the fruits of it. Uh, you know, this year, we've seen a number of pit startups uh, well-funded in everything from seed rounds to um, you know large series BC rounds on the order of tens of millions of dollars. Um, and those came, you know, those ones that are getting the big rounds came from work uh, that we did years ago. So it, it takes that kind of time, of course. All right, well, that's a wrap. Chris Newmarker, tell the folks how they can find you on social media. You know, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. And I'm on Twitter, handle at Newmarker. I'm always happy to talk with people. Um, you know, heck, when this uh, pandemic hopefully, uh, you know, goes away in a few months, I mean, maybe you'll see me with a sandwich board in downtown Minneapolis. You never know. <laughs> a few months. God bless you, sir. I hope you're you're right. Dr. Fauci didn't, uh, didn't warm my heart too much yesterday talking about... Uh, talking about the fall, but we'll see where things go. Exactly. It got to be optimistic. I mean, you're right. You know, it could be the fall. could be like, as long as it's like this goes away before the, uh, you know, before the end of baseball season, because it'd be nice to get my kids to a baseball game. That's all I can say. I, I do miss baseball. That's one of my one of the things I miss most. I am also on social media, of course, on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, on Twitter, at MedTech Tom. Great to connect with you there. Please do subscribe to this podcast. Please do use those social media channels to uh, share this podcast. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. We'd love love to have more people listening. And once again, if you subscribe, then you'll have these podcasts sent directly to you. You won't have to wait until we post it up on our websites or our social media. So uh, so just push the subscribe button. It's super easy. We're everywhere. Po- Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. We'll, we're, we'll be there for you. So uh, that's it, folks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of this podcast waiting for you. Stay classy. <laughs>